singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in several ways. You can write a brief review on iTunes, you can leave a comment on YouTube, or you can simply make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, the guest with the answers will be no one else but Robert Scoble. Robert doesn't really need an introduction, but just in case, for some people who may be completely offline... I would say that he's the liaison officer for Rackspace. He's a social media phenomenon. He's a technology pundit with a huge following. Uh, he's also a journalist who has done thousands of interviews at the very bleeding edge of technology. And according to his own words, he is someone who always tries to have the front row seat on tech. Thank so, <laughs> without further ado, Robert, thanks very much for being with us today. Although you're my new competition, you're you're kicking butt with these interviews. <laughs> thanks very much. I hope uh, I hope I really kick butt soon. <laughs> I at least uh, get uh, to, a, to a fraction of of the place where you're at right now. Well, you got Thad Starner, and I, that was a really impressive. In fact, my Google Glass is downstairs uh, charging up. So. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And th by the way, for those who don't know, that's how uh, kind of me and Robert uh, connected. Uh, he really enjoyed and, and uh, posted on his social network my interview with Thad Starner. So for those who may have missed it, go check it out. It's a fantastic interview, according to no one else but Robert. And I have to agree, I concur entirely with that. Uh, but let's get back on topic here. Robert, if you were to introduce yourself in a couple of sentences, how would you do it? Uh, I, I like new things. I always, I grew up in Cupertino, you know, a mile from Apple computer and got a Apple II when I was in junior high. And, uh, my dad got an Apple II and our school bought some Apple IIs and that just got me in. I, I knew my future had changed when we unboxed that. And, um, I've always been into new things ever since that, back in 1977. And uh, my dad was an engineer in the, in the Silicon Valley, so I got to see a lot of Silicon Valley uh, come through the house. <laughs> and uh, that got me interested in computers and technology. I, I never took to programming. I tried. Uh, my dad wanted me to be an engineer, too, or uh, something scientific. And uh, I tried. I, I got through two years of uh, calculus in uh, college and then I, the 89 earthquake hit and I was in physics class and I said, man, that's a big story. And I, I realized I liked journalism a lot more than <laughs> trying to do math and science and, and, uh, you know, and, and learn how to program. Um, and I, the rest is all on Wikipedia. I mean, I, I met Steve Wozniak. I learned how to set up a bunch of Macs cause the world was just switching at that time from mini computers to, um, these Macintosh-based computers for journalism. In fact, the, during the 89 earthquake, the San Francisco Chronicle published on the steps of somebody's house with a Macintosh, with a like a, a really old Macintosh now, and a laser printer. And if it wasn't for that, the paper wouldn't have gotten published because all the presses were down. Mm -hmm. um, or all the uh, typesetting machines, I'm sorry, were down. And um, I got to San Jose State, the same thing happened. I 
you know, that's why I got my name Scobalizer because I, I set up OS 7 beta on everybody's machines because I ran, uh, the journalism's Macintosh network and with, uh, Steve Sloan. And, um, one of the, one of the, uh, employees says, help, I can't use my computer. I've been scobalized. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of funny. I mean, last night my, we got new, uh, YouTube app on our iPad, iPad, iPads and, uh, my son had almost the same <laughs> expressions like, What's this? <laughs> I can't use this anymore. <laughs> it's a, everything's changed on it, you know. Um, and I, that got me into a computer programming magazine, which got me into the Microsoft ecosystem. And you know, I was at the first NT Developers Conference, and I switched from Macs to Windows NT at that time, and that got me into tablet PCs and all sorts of fun stuff, and got me into blogging later because we ran comps and. Two of our speakers got me into blogging, mm-hmm. um, and like you know, blogging then just took my career and made me a, a name that, and give me an audience, which was pretty hard to do before that. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so you gave us sort of the short story. And by the way, as a side note, I've been trying to get uh, Steve Wozniak myself for an interview on this show. I was lucky enough to meet him twice when I was at Singularity University, and he did promise to give me an interview. The problem is that after Jobs, because we were shooting at about the time that, you know, Steve Jobs unfortunately passed away, and after that, you know, he got swamped, and, and now, like, the big the big fish came into the pond, and I'm, I'm still struggling to, to try and get him. You'll get him. He, he's, uh, he's a nice guy, and I, you know, he, he, I talked him out of 40 grand for our journalism department, mm-hmm. um, and I studied every morning with him, and... Um, Really got to know some of the, the Apple stories and got to know him. And he, he's just one of my favorite people in the world. So, mm-hmm. um, same here. Uh, I, lo- I love the guy. I love the guy. And the I, problem is uh, the stories haven't changed because he hasn't, he hasn't really done all that much since, <laughs> you know, the 1980s in terms of technology. I mean, I, he keeps playing around with it. And if you scratch him, you'll, f- you'll, you'll discover his passion for cell phones. I mean, I remember one time he went into a store and bought like 200 cell phones. And, and, oh, wow. And, you know, because he, well, he built uh, scanners to follow people around. <laughs> remember before, before everything turned digital and encrypted, wow. you could, you, you could listen to people's cell phone conversations. And if you had a scanner, you could follow them from cell to cell. And he has recordings of people saying the, the craziest stuff on their cell phone. <laughs> Talk well, about privacy. There was no privacy back then. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you kind of gave us the, the 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 short story of your life and how you got to be where you are today. But can you tell us what is it in the world that you're doing right now? What does this mean to be chief liaison officer? And because from where I'm standing, you gotta have the coolest job in the world. And I'm thinking it's one of them. I I have I know a few people who have I think. Like I know Jim Long is a camera guy for NBC in the White House, and every time we get together and start drinking, he tells me all these crazy stories of being on Air Force One. You can't even blog these stories, you know, being in Kandahar with the president, you know. But yeah, it's it's pretty hard to beat my job. <laughs> yeah. So so how is it? What is it that you do anyway? And how is it that someone gets to have a cool job like that? It might be more fun to be like Bill Gates or Larry Olson. I don't know. <laughs> they, they have their own uh, hells that they've created. I, I you know, I uh, just have always interviewed 
uh, I mean, going back to Steve Wysak in 89 when I, I stalked him, right? I, I kept seeing his car on our college campus and it was always in the same spot. So he made it easy. <laughs> and I just kept waking up earlier and earlier until the car wasn't there and I waited for him to show up. And, uh, and he gave me an interview and then he got, you know, I, I eventually got the nerve up to ask him for an old Mac and he said, Oh, you need a whole lab. And I always give money to the schools I'm going to. He was studying Spanish at our community college, which was fun. Um, so where were we going with that? Uh, you know, um, what is it that you do? How do you, how do I, what, yeah, what do I do? Uh, Rackspace just asked me, go and find the future and, 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 uh, and interview them. You know, that's all they really, uh, they want to know, well, I, I mean, it's deeper than that. For Rackspace, I do um, these interviews. So I go around and do what you're doing. I go and interview tech executives, innovators, geeks. Like last weekend, I was hanging out with the, uh, uh, the Google, at the Google uh, Glass Hackathon, right? And I'll be at another one. And I, there's a Sears hack. So I, I, I do, I build relationships for Rackspace. I, uh, Find out when, you know, if your company's on Amazon or Microsoft or something like that, I, I find out why. And that turns into email internally to, to the strategist saying, Hey, the, the, you know, the, the other guys are still beating us here, 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 and you better fix that. Um, you know, some of it's, uh, it's, you're like a strategic spook, like for, for, for Rackspace. Yeah, it's a, a little bit like that. I, Part, a big part of it is actually uh, what what Red Bull is doing. So Red Bull is a great product to talk about because the product the product is uh, hold on the product sucks, right? Um, so Red Bull is uh, sugar water with uh, caffeine and a few other things, and it. it's really not the pro- you can't talk about the product and sell two billion dollars a year of that, right? So they don't try. They, you've never seen an ad where they talk about the ingredients or what's in the product. They talk about pushing the boundaries. Right. And how do they do that? They apply their brand to gods in our society. So people who jump out of spaceships, people who surf big waves, people who race cars, even even uh, geeky gods they'll put their brand on, right? The guy who owned MySpace had a, had a cooler in his house. They brought a cooler to his house because they wanted to build that brand association between gods and in, in our society and their brand. In fact, if you work at Red Bull, you're not allowed to wear the brand, the logo on your clothing unless you're a god, unless you've been chosen as one of these gods that we want the brand to be on. Wow. And, and yeah, it's very, very deliberate, right? It's hacking your brain. And this is marketing, you know, 404. It's really advanced marketing. Um, and that's what, that's part of what I do is I go around and I interview the guy who started Instagram or, or the guy who started box.net or the lady who started wildfire interactive, uh, and, you know, make sure that Rackspace is associated somehow with that very subtly because, you know, you don't need to be frontal about it, but, um, you know, there's lots of logos around here that <laughs> have, have Rackspace on them, right? Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this though. Uh, that's sort of the, the, the rack space end of things. But from your own point of view, is there sort of like a overarching motivation or a goal that looking backwards kind of spans for the past 20 or 30 years since that phenomenal meeting with 
Steve Jobs, that, which literally changed your life. It, it, it goes back before that. I mean, I, you know, getting new cameras in high school. I worked in a consumer electronics store, and I always – I always loved new things. When the Minolta Maxim autofocus came out, it was the first uh, DS or uh, first SLR with autofocus. I sold all our entire shipment. I sold in like two hours, <laughs> you know, wow. because I was so excited about it. It was like this is a new thing and it's fun and it's different and mm-hmm. it does stuff that uh, even a professional photographer couldn't do. And, and in fact, we had arguments about that. And it's funny. It's funny how people resist new new ideas, new technologies, because the pros would say, "I can focus faster," and I go, "Really?" You know, even back then, when when it was slow, mm-hmm. autofocus would go and stop right on the image. And yeah. I was like, "I've watched a lot of pros. They do a lot of uh, tricks to focus where they want. Yeah. But, you know, they'll focus on the ground and wait till the runner gets there and then shoot a frame. Uh, you know, all sorts of tricks to do focus." I was like. Autofocus is going to kick your butt. <laughs> and sure enough, now every pro uses autofocus, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, the really innovative ones, I, I went to um, school with Brad Mangin, and he's now one of the best sports photographers in the world. He bought one of the first Canon EOS uh, 300 F2.8 lenses. He, he put it on his credit card in college. And all the college kids were like, oh, dude, that is crazy putting a $10,000 lens on your credit cards. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But now he's the best sports photographer in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he saw the advantage of using new technology to do something new. And, I, and that's what I've always been intrigued by. And, and it, it just is my life. I'd do it if I didn't get paid. I, so know. is it curiosity or is it like the desire to have fun? Because it looks like you're having tons of fun. That's why we're all so jealous. Yeah, it's it's both, right? It's it's where I like to know where the future's going. Um and I like to be one of those guys who doesn't resist technology, doesn't argue with people about is Google Glass going to be popular or not. There's plenty of people who are, right? In fact, last night Mike Arrington and I were having this argument. He's like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard and you know, he's resisting. And it's like I never want to be a resistor of new technology. I it, never. If I do, then I I feel old, you know, because that's what older people did in my life. You know, most of them. <laughs> well, I'm going to come back to that topic of resisting uh, new technology and and embracing it and and the risks of sort of early adopters. But before that, let me just uh, ask you. Yeah, something. the risk. The risk today is you look like a dork, right? <laughs> <laughs> but and I'm okay for that. And that, yeah, and that's people nuts too, right? Sure, and there are benefits to being a geek. I mean, some people find that interesting. You know, it may work with certain kind of people to become friends, to get hooked up with girls or whatever, right? It's it's cool yeah. nowadays, kind of. The By geek- the way, I, it's really interesting talking about girls at the Google hack, the Google Glass hackathons. It was almost forty uh, percent women, or more, almost half women at the hackathon, and that. That's a huge change. That's it, fantastic. And and I found that very fascinating because everybody thinks there's a fashion cost that these things look dorky on your face, but it, it, they are attracting women as programmers mm-hmm. because they understand this this is going to be a future that they can uh, get excited about. And I, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you're someone who's interested in where the future is going. So in yeah. the context of Google Glass, is that where the future is going? How revolutionary change is that? I think it's a big deal. I um, I feel like I, 
I have the same feelings about Google Glass that I had about the Apple II. I think it's a, it's a new product category that's going to take 30 years to really play out, you know, or 20 years. And, um, it, it, right now it has no software. It's expensive. The Apple II was expensive. It had no software. It, it wasn't very fast. It had, uh, it, it didn't even come with a screen. It was, you know, Waz's big breakthrough was he designed it to use a com- uh, television screen, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, or one of his big breakthroughs. I mean, he had many breakthroughs on that product, but, um, I feel like that it, it's a breakthrough. It's, it, you know, uh, t- in your interview, Tad said it's, uh, having a Cray one on your face. Yeah. Which back Super when computer. Well, when I was in high school, I remember Apple buying that, that Cray one. It cost more than a million dollars and it took an entire room and now it's 49 grams on your face. I think, and, and I, I'm seeing the kinds of apps that developers are thinking about and, and working on. And it's like, oh yeah, this is quite different than a cell phone. It, it's a full on sensor platform that's, uh, letting you do all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, flying drones with your head and all sorts of fun stuff that, that I, I don't think is important today. And it's hard to tell that it's going to be mass market, but I've seen this happen over and over again in my career where, uh, something really pushes forward and everybody resists it or, or a lot of people resist it. And sure enough, it turns out to be really important. I, this is, this is one I'm I'm gonna live every day with, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so let me ask you this. Uh, In fact, I'm missing it during the interview right now. I, mean, I can tell it's loud on my face. And, so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny how technology becomes a part of us very very quickly. Yeah. Um, now, for those of us who haven't had the chance to yet use it personally, what would be some of your favorite applications or uh, you know uh, benefits <laughs> of the device? I mean, I, I would buy it just for the camera. I'm getting pictures of my kids that I never got before. I, it takes one, less than one second to take an image with it. Where on my, uh, you know, on my, uh, um, even on a Samsung or an iPhone, it takes three to five seconds, um, at minimum. And, and sometimes getting, just getting it out of your pocket takes three to five seconds. And then it takes another three to five seconds to find the button and wait for the image to show up and take the image. And by that time, the kids have stopped doing the cute thing that they were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the killer app, number one. But I I don't think that's the promise of this thing. Mm -hmm. The the promise of this thing is it's the first consumer electronics device that knows where you're aimed. So it, it knows, you know, where you're aimed. And it's really good at that. Um, and, and there hasn't been any apps that really have exploited that yet, right? Um, and it knows where you're looking. So there's a 16 by 16 eye sensor that's watching your pupil move around and can probably even tell if you're excited because your eye opens up when you're excited or, uh, um, you know, it, it can watch if you're sleepy or, or if you're winking, all sorts of fun stuff. So think about driving with it. It could tell that you're falling asleep and, Warn you. Uh, well, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. All sorts of fun stuff. But for example, uh, just a couple of days ago, one of the things that really freaked out some people online was a patent filed by Google about sort of watching your gaze and yeah. estimating which arcs are uh, which ads 
work and which ads don't work and where they should be placed so that you get to see them more and more. So how about that business well, I, model with, with uh, ads? I think, goes, I think it goes a lot deeper than that. I think Google is building a contextual OS, an operating system that knows your context. And what do I mean by that? Uh, already they have an API that knows whether you're walking, running, biking, or driving. Okay, that's four contexts. Uh, next year, it'll be eight. And the year after, it'll be 16. And the year after, it'll be 32. And, the, you know, so mm-hmm. think about, can you figure out somebody shopping by just by walk, watching them walk around? Of course you can, because if you're in a, it, first of all, you're in a shopping mall. That means you're shopping. You, you've crossed the geofence into the mall. Second of all, this thing knows where you're aiming. So if you're if you're running through the mall, First of all, it knows that you're running, and so it can say, okay, he's running. He's not shopping. Mm-hmm. But shoppers, you know, walk through the mall, and all of a sudden they turn and look at a store. You know, their intent changed. Their their gaze changed. Their, window their, shopping. At, window shopping, right? If you're at Macy's in New York, you're looking at the, at, the, at the windows. You're not walking down the street going past it, right? And so it can know right there. It can switch. Oh, you're in a shopping context, and then it can say, it, then it can fire uh, the camera, take a picture of that store window, and then watch where you look. And if it knows anything about that window, if it knows, oh, there's a, a trumpet in the upper right, and there's a, a drum in the upper left, and there's a, a guitar in the middle, and there's a, a saxophone in the middle left, if you look at the trumpet, you're, it knows. It can put that in the database. Oh, this guy's uh, thinking about a trumpet for mm-hmm. some reason, and maybe he has. And then it would match up with other contexts. Do you have a kid? Oh, you might. Oh, is there a birthday next week? You know, it could start making some assumptions about why you're shopping. You know, and and it can even ask you. You know, is but it, those are assumptions you, are a double-edged sword, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I, you're gonna. You could have false positives, uh, but you could ask the user. You could say, "Hey." I, we noticed you were interested in that trumpet. Are you, uh, you know, would you like to see other models? <laughs> would you like to know other stores nearby? Would you, you know, because uh, it can try to guess what you're trying to, your intent is, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and certainly Google is watching everything, right? So if you go to uh, Google and you type trumpet, <laughs> all of a sudden it knows you're really strongly attached to trumpet. And if you start looking for music stores or if you ask Google Glass, okay, Glass, uh, where's the closest music store? All of a sudden it knows your intent is really strong on music and trumpets, right? And mm-hmm. and then you're going to start showing it some brand names and watch your behavior, um, you know. And it'll know, by the way, it'll know your economic circumstances, right? So if you're a billionaire, it's going to show you a different kind of trumpet than if you're Robert Scoville. And, and you know, um, my friends who are poor are, are uh, or, you know, who aren't as well off, it'll show them a far different trumpet. So it'll put you in a different category. If you're part of a band, it'll know a lot more. Or it might look at, if it knows what you're buying it for, then, it'll, you know, if it's for yourself, it'll watch your uh, Spotify behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So it'll know, oh, you're into this kind of music, you're into jazz music, you should look at these trumpets because these are more appropriate for jazz than classical, you know? Mm-hmm. Speaking of Google uh, always watching, let me read to you something and you tell me what you think and how relevant or truthful that is. Yep. It's a quote which goes like this. Always eyes watching you, asleep or awake, indoors or out of doors, in the bath or bed, no yep. escape, 
Nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters in your skull. Yeah. I'm, I'm wearing a, a, a new kind of sleep monitor that, uh, the, by the way, the, the pilots who fly the president wear this. Um, and, uh, it's not yet publicly available, but yeah, I wear it to bed. I wear it when I'm having sex. I wear it in the shower. Uh, I wear it. I, I'm, I was told never take this off for, uh, for at least a week and we'll figure out your sleep pattern, right? And it'll even warn me when I'm, when I'm not, when I've reached, when I've reached 70% on this, it's the same as having two glasses of alcohol. So it's the same as being drunk, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and if you continue working, your mistake rate goes way up. So, and they've studied this. They put this on minors. They put this on people who fly the president around because they know if you hit 70%, you're flying the president while drunk. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's the same as flying him as, as if you had two, two shots of whiskey right before you flew the president. They're not going to let you do that. Right. So, <laughs> so are we living in that world that I described now with that quote? Yeah. And it's funny. My book ends up where uh, in 25 years we're going to go to the Ritz and we're going to go into an escape room where there, there's <laughs> where it's going to turn off all of our digital devices. In no a Faraday cage or something. Faraday cage and it's going to turn off all the devices and everything's going to unhook from our nerves and, <laughs> you know, and we're going to be able to be ourselves again, right? <laughs> but now let me ask you this though, because that paragraph that I read to you was from George Orwell's book, 1984. Yep, I know it. So does that change anything? And and did we fail to heed his warning? Yes, but we're not going to. We're not gonna. We're not gonna heed his warning. Um, we're not gonna turn off the NSA. We're uh, you know we we like security. We we don't like things flying into our biggest skyscrapers. Uh, we don't like uh, Timothy McVeigh bombing our buildings. If you if you went and bought a ton of diesel fuel right now or a uh, 250 gallons of diesel fuel and a ton of fertilizer. I guarantee you, somebody's gonna come looking at what you're doing. All right? Yeah, but if I Google say and that, but that happened. And and a rice cooker, or or a slow cooker, they will come and check you out. Absolutely. Now, does that make any sense? Yes, it does. I'm not sure. I'm not yes, sure. Or, or, for example, just whatever happened yesterday. It certainly does if you have other markers that mark you as somebody who is a risk to society. Everybody gets rated this way. If you went to the White House, they ask you to wait outside for a couple hours. Why? Because they're doing a security check on you to make sure you're not a threat. You know. And if you want to get into the White House, you better be a good citizen and not be mouthing off on Facebook, right? Sure, okay. For the White House, I agree. Or if you're going to even, let's say, a courtroom or a courthouse, of course, you're going to go through a metal detector. That's the difference. But if you're in your own home and if you're searching on your own computer... If you're planning, if you're getting together with other people who have done harm to our society and then you do that, uh, I'm sorry. Expect a knock on the door. Mm. That's part of living in the society today. But that that idea about harm is what worries me, because just yesterday, the British government used the terrorism legislation to uh, hold a Brazilian citizen on on Heathrow Airport, uh, who was basically the partner of of the Guardian journalist who broke the Snowden story. And they they claimed that he was a terrorist, basically. Well, that's over the line. Um, And this is the problem. 
we've created a surveillance society that can be used for a lot of good. I think everybody agrees that we'd like to stop, you know, 9-11 from happening again or, uh, or the Boston bombers. We caught them pretty quickly because of IT inf- investments, not mm-hmm. necessarily, we didn't prevent them, uh, but, but we caught them within a week because we had pictures. Citizens had pictures. Uh, security cameras had pictures. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, Israeli software that let the, the government go through those pictures in an extremely fast fashion and find yep. the, the, you know, the few people that they wanted to look at deeper. That I think everybody, everybody agrees that's pretty good. I'm, uh, it's hard to make an argument that we shouldn't do any of that, right? But, I agree. Uh, I, I agree with I, you. My my, my great grandfather was arrested in Germany for speaking out against the Nazis. I know, and my wife is Iranian, and she has friends with whip marks on her on their back yeah. that they got just for hanging out with a girl in a car. I I understand when when governments go over the line, and that's it's it's a hard thing. It's a slippery slope, and that's. That's the cautionary tale is how do we put checks and balances? How do we um, keep people from using their power against other people in an inappropriate way? That's uh, an interesting conversation to me that I like talking about because it's clear we're not going to turn off all the security cameras. We're not going to turn off the uh, NSA taps onto the fiber optic lines. We're not going to, you know. We're not going to stop doing surveillance. So not- you think we are going to, to continue living in a world where, according to the news today, 75% of the traffic is actually scanned by the NSA? Yeah, I, I don't see us going back from that. I, I just don't. I, you know, the, the world politically would have to radically change, and average citizens in the street would have to change their voting behavior. And I know they are not. So... We are not going to turn off those taps, and that's going to be part of our life for the rest. I, I have to say, I really hope you're wrong on that one. Well, you I, may you be right. Anybody, do you see anybody doing million man marches on on Washington D.C. because of this stuff? I don't. Well, do you see anybody can. changing their voting behavior? Do you see the polls changing that much? I don't. I. I I'm a pragmatist. I, I wish the political system was different. I wish we could get immigration reform. I, it's it's criminal how we treat immigrants in this country. Um, you know, and on and on. Sheryl Sandberg and I just talked about this. She just spoke at a high school that had 40% illegal immigrants, and they can't even report being raped because uh, because they're they are at fear of being deported. Right? This is a human rights issue that we should be fucking livid about, and we're not. So, you know, until our, until we change, our system isn't going to change. But right? I believe we can change. Don't you believe the same thing? I, I do, but it is, it, it takes, it takes change. I, I'm just a journalist. I just watch. Do you, did you change? You know, I, I'm not the guy out there who's going to be like leading that million man march and planning, you know, a uh, revolution. I, that's not me. I'm, I'll be the journalist taking pictures that you're doing. It, but, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So far, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it. Well, I've seen some glimmers you know, of it yes, we, with we Aaron like, Schwartz and people we, like that. Yeah, but we like talking about it. You know, I haven't yet seen the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we we have uh, 18 months to the next, or uh, how many months till the next election? Next next November, right? That's the time. I we'll see. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Maybe they well be- throw out everybody who, who voted for the NSA. I don't think they will because mm-hmm. I they vote for the biggest idiots 
I go deeper than an essay. These guys have been doing crazy crap for years, right? We we all don't believe in the in the in the Senate and the Congress. The, their ratings are the lowest ever, and yet we keep voting them in. So in, until we stop voting them in, mm-hmm. I, I I don't believe we're going to change. Okay, let me move on here to some audience questions. Uh, so one sort of curiosity one from Isaac Winters, who says, "I want to know what ended up happening to the Google Glass." picture he he wore in the shower. The picture became famous, but I have heard nothing about how the device, the device held up afterwards. Oh, it's, it's water resistant. I, we took them river rafting and got them completely wet and they survive water pretty well. I mean, there's nothing in them. <laughs> if you wow. really look at it, there's, there's a, a, a low grade processor chip, you know, a TI chip. There's a little RAM chip. There's a, a camera chip mm-hmm. and there's a projector chip. And a prism that's plastic, and it's pretty well sealed against water. It, it, now it's not perfect. If water gets in, it can corrode things and make them flaky. And actually, if you get water on the touch surface, it it sometimes uh, uh, freaks out the machine. But uh, you just wipe it off, and it stops freaking out. Um, these things are pretty water resistant. And it, when I vet, visited Plantronics, they actually showed me how they waterproof their uh, audio headsets because they know you're going to get sweaty or go out in the rain or you know, get wet on a, a, you know, somehow. And uh, they ha- actually have a micro coating that repels water that they dip these things into it as the final manufacturing. And that, that coating is going to be available this year so you can do it with your own glass. And th- this stuff is remarkable. You can put that in a glass of water and pull it out and it's totally dry. And there not, no water sticks to the surfaces. Yeah, it's and, like nanomaterial, nanospray. Yeah. And so you can do that, and also they're going to get better at, at sealing the little pieces that aren't sealed yet. You know, it just takes a little bit of sealant to do that. People are going to take apart their glass. When when the costs come down, you're going to take them apart. You're going to buy, like Waz bought, you know, 20 cell phones or 200 cell phones one time. Uh, you're going to, you know, take them apart and rebuild them and make sure that you seal them against water. They're, I'm not too worried about that. I, mm-hmm. you, uh, it won't be uh, for using underwater, and that's where GoPro is going to uh, still uh, be significant. Let me ask you this. Werner Vinge has a super cool book called Rain- Rainbow's End, which is all about augmented reality w- with lenses. Have you have you read it? I haven't. No, I've, I know who he is, though. I uh-huh. uh, okay, well, we'll come back to another of his ideas a little bit later in the show. But in the meantime, let me ask I've, you something I've else. been interviewing a lot of augmented reality companies, and uh, um, there's some really interesting ones coming um, that, that as you look at um, anything, your floor, it builds a 3D mesh as you look at it. And so you can play games with cars on the floor. But... Think about walking into a sports stadium. Each sports stadium has a fingerprint of how it is uh, arranged. And all you would have to do is do one scan with your glass, and it would know that you're at San Francisco's AT&T Park, for instance. And and it would know where you are in that park because of the fingerprint that it's, it sees. And uh, then it can put stuff on the field. It can put all sorts of stuff on the field, you know. It can put your players' stats right on the field next to them or, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, uh, let me ask you this. You said that you want to embrace the future and new technologies, but now we have sort of a crude augmentation with uh, devices like Google Glass, but 
What about biotech and the coming sort of synthetic biology or genetic revolution? Do you, what do you think of that? Is that I, the next step of augmentation, and would you be willing to be that uh, yeah, welcoming? That, uh, well, it depends on who you are. I, I just saw some brain surgeons at a, at a, a fun offsite I was at, right? And they, they, uh, uh, they model the patient's brain and it, they do this for uh, Parkinson's disease. They model their brain and they, they surgically implant an electrode into the brain. Yeah, and this brain one stimulation, this one patient was shaking like this, right? Parkinson's, and could not control yeah. his hand. And he turns on his, his sensor or his uh, stimulation and his hand goes to normal. It's remarkable stuff. Now it costs $150,000 to do that. There are side effects because you're putting something in somebody's brain, and you only do that if you can't hold your hand steady, right? Yeah. Uh, me, I don't have that problem, so I'm not going to sign up for the, for that. Um, there's going to be. What about a, having the the Google Glass right inside of your head? I not soon. Not going to come soon. I you know we're at the Apple II stage of this Google Glass. We haven't yet seen the IBM PC version. You know? <laughs> we haven't yet seen the Macintosh, which will be, you know. I, and I certainly, I, I've gone to lots of research labs because I'm writing a book called The Age of Context. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm researching this stuff. And at SRI, where the Internet was invented and HDTV was invented, they have um, a pair of binoculars with two 1080p sensors and two 1080p uh, displays. And, uh, you can tag things in 3D space. So you can, it's for the military. So you could go up on top of the hill and you could tag a building and say, that's the building we should blow up, you know? Um, and somebody on the other side of the valley with the same kind of binocular would see the tag in the same place. So every, and a, and a jet pilot r- flying around would see the tag as well. So everybody sees the same tag in the same point on the same elevation, same. Yeah, I uh, think that's what they do now space. with laser marking. Yes, but this is optical, right? And this is yeah. no laser, it's just optical. Because yeah. uh, it knows where you're looking, it knows where you're standing, it knows where you're looking. Uh, you can do a lot of fun fun stuff algorithmically that way. Mm-hmm. But they put uh, augmented reality people on the ground, and you, we were shaking the binoculars, and these people, these virtual actors were on the ground. It was really amazing. It's like being in the middle of a Hollywood film, only it's a mixture of real you know, they were running between trees and properly occluded by the trees. Wow. And, and they were virtual. So virtual and real, you know. Wow. Uh, in in five years, this is going to be productized, right? And it's going to come out and be, be Google Glass 3.0, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Apple Glass 2.0 or whatever it is, you know. And uh, we're going to be playing paintball with each other and with virtual zombies in the street. It's going to be like the next X, the next Xbox is going to be wearables, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you did, did, you see the, did you see the winner of the Google Glass Hackathon this weekend? No. It was built in one weekend, and it was a Frogger that you played by by jumping. <laughs> you know? Wow. And so you, you had to actually jump to get through the freeway. You know? wow. I mean, now that's a simple game that was built in the 1980s, you know, and rebuilt for Google Glass. But that's what I'm saying. This is The Glass is a sensor platform, and it's very, very powerful. It's going to be fun to see developers uh, come up with new ways to use the sensors there because mm-hmm. the sensors are quite different than your your cell phone, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this doesn't know really where I'm aiming. It, it knows where the phone's being aimed, but uh, it, w- with glass, it knows where I'm aiming, 
And that's mm-hmm. a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Let me move on here, though, to uh, your book. You just mentioned that you're working on a book called The Age of Context. What can you tell us about it? It's, you know, I just started noticing um, that things were escaping out of the research lab and becoming real. Um, you know, Tad, I went back after your interview with uh, with Thad, I, and I read his thesis project, which he wrote back in 1991. And he he basically explained how Google Glass was going to work back in 1991, which yeah. is, it's just pretty amazing to think that he was – that there still are visionaries amongst us that are, you know, thinking 20 years ahead of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But I started seeing sensors are going up exponentially, wearable computers are going up exponentially, uh, databases. I, 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 every two weeks, it seems like I learn about a new database innovation. In fact, um, who was I talking to? One, one of the CEOs of like New Relic or a company like that said all of his infrastructure was, did not exist five years ago. You know, in other words, he's, these companies are now building with MongoDB and technologies that just didn't exist five years ago. And I, I totally get that. And then if you look at social network behavior, uh, Twitter is seeing a billion tweets every 36 hours. In 18 months, that'll be a billion tweets in every 18 hours. So it's still doubling like Moore's law, right? And anytime you get Moore's law kind of, uh, behaviors in the world it's interesting and same thing with location so location social mobile um sensors wearable computers are all going up exponentially and that add those five things together it it, it lets you build this new kind of contextual software that's the context you're referring to yeah because it's going to know what we are doing who we're doing it with where we're doing it and uh sort of our intent and how we react to things i you know i was wearing a galvanic skin response sensor when I was speaking at the next web and the guy who invented that sensor was watching my uh, nervous system in yeah, life. I saw that video. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So yeah. he knew he knew how nervous I was on stage and he said, okay, you've calmed down a bit and there was a graph. You peaked then, in the beginning and then you calmed down as it went on. Yeah, and then and then uh, uh, you know he started talking to me about different things, and then we started talking about the red light district in Amsterdam, and it peaked back up. And it's like, <laughs> oh wait a second, you you are inside my brain in a level, right? And we haven't even talked about going inside my brain. We're just watching my electrical signals, you know, mm-hmm. and how excited I am about certain topics, and so. You add that into the eye, where the eye is looking. You add that into where I'm aiming, where I am, who I'm doing it with, what my speech pattern is, what what is my intent, what what do I ask for? Man, you can know me at a fairly deep level and then assist my life. So, so two things I noticed, you know, last year we were starting to see apps like Google Now that were assistive, and we were starting to see products that were highly personalized. And Plantronics talked to me about this, but so did General Motors. General Motors said, soon we're going to have a little sensor. We're going to know you're sitting in the driver's seat, and we're going to know it's you. And we're going to be able to customize the car to you based on what you're doing in the car. You know, if you're a passenger, it's different It's than if you're driving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes way beyond just moving the seat back and forth and turning on the air conditioner the temperature you like. Where you know? can people and when can people get the book? We're 
uh, we are launching it November 7th in San Carlos, but it might be out a little bit before that. So, mm-hmm. but November 7th is the official date. And would it be available on Amazon? On- of course. Yeah. Is there anything else? <laughs> I've been asking, I've been going around to geeks, you know, and asking, where did you get your last five bucks? And I haven't found anybody who answered anything but Amazon lately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, uh, Amazon really has built a monopoly in this industry. Robert, time is advancing here. So, um, I have another three or four questions left. Uh, let's see if we can go through them in the next 10 minutes. Um, sure. so you listed many technologies which kind of make you excited about the future and that you are welcoming and embracing wholeheartedly. Is there anything that worries you? I, it, all technology worries me. Um, there's always a good and there's always a bad to technology, even like driving a car. If if we were, you know, back in Mercedes-Benz lab, you know, back 150 years or whenever the car was invented in the late 1800s, would we have had that discussion? You know, this thing is going to kill 37,000 people a year which is far deeper of a problem than privacy, right? I I don't know yet anybody who's been killed in America by uh, the NSA. Maybe there is, but, but I haven't heard of them. Um, but many of my friends have gotten killed in car wrecks, you know, so that technology has a downside, and we should worry about it. I'd still worry about it. I I want sensors on my car to study if somebody's coming toward me in, in a way that I don't see and s- I've talked to Ford about that and talked to uh, Toyota and Audi, um, you know, but there's always a downside to technology, I, you know, and you're seeing some of it play out in the Grocklaw uh, letter when she, when she said she's closing down Grocklaw, she said it messes with her head, the, the fact that she's going to be surveilled and people are going to read her email. Yeah. I, I got used to that idea 12 years ago because I, I, um, I knew – I watched Microsoft's uh, private email get put into the public domain because of the DOJ lawsuit, and this was before I worked at Microsoft. So I knew that it was possible that even an email that I thought was private to somebody I worked with could get leaked and put out in the public view because of a lawsuit or some other reason. So I always – had, uh, for the last 12 years have had that belief. And that's part of why I'm so public with so much of my life. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to let it all hang out anyways. And, and, and I'm going to swim in this new psycho- psychological world where I'm being surveilled and I'm going to do it all in public anyway. So anybody can surveil me, right? Uh, which brings a lot of good to my life. You know, people call me up and invite me to parties and I get invites to do really crazy things like go to the, on the deck of an aircraft carrier, stuff that would never have happened if I had tried to be closed. And well, I feel the same way like you, and I've taken the similar decision to be as public as I can. But at the same time, I want to be respectful to people who choose otherwise, and I want to still yeah. have that possibility. And it seems that it's diminishing; it's kind of I, going extinct. I think it's going to be really hard to escape. Yeah. You know. Uh, even if you don't carry a cell phone, even if you stay off the internet, my, my ex-father-in-law, by the way, told me when I showed him the internet back in 94, and, and I said, man, everybody's going to be using this thing. He's like, I will never touch a computer. And he was right. He died never touching a computer. Mm-hmm. But even his address back in 1994 was on the internet. 
without him being on it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his name was on the internet. So, so he was on the internet without even touching a computer. He, he tried to stay, and this was back in 94. Mm-hmm. So think about how much the world has progressed in terms of connecting of databases and opening up databases about things. If you're walking with somebody who's on the internet, you're on the internet too. Because it can sense that you're, there's two people. If I have Google Glass on and I'm talking to you, it knows I'm looking at you. It can take a picture of you. It can yeah. see that there's two eyes there and it can say, oh, we don't have that guy in the database yet. <laughs> okay. He's an un, he's an unknown man, but you're sort of in the internet then, right? And mm-hmm. it's really hard to escape. And the metadata that you're spraying off by doing these searches or calls. Gigantic, yeah. Oh. I don't need to see what you're talking about to know sort of, as sort of who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, I can judge you in a lot of ways without knowing the content of your email. Let that's me... a, that's like the reverse of Martin Luther King, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to judge you on the co- color of your skin. I'm going to judge you on the co- on the context of who you are. <laughs> you know, who are you making phone calls to? If it's a, an Al Qaeda member, all of a sudden you get marked, right? Well, I recently interviewed the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Dr. Anne Kavukian, and, and she says that uh, metadata, what is called metadata, is actually much more important than the content of any specific piece of yeah. communication. But anyway, let me... Yeah, ask- here's, here's a good example. I live in uh, Half Moon Bay, which is on the ocean, and every once in a while they catch a drug dealer trying to bring dope in from the ocean. If I bought a boat today... And for the next three weeks, all I did was drive to the middle of the ocean and drive back. I guarantee you I'm going to get searched. <laughs> it's it's not the content of my boat that got me searched. It's the metadata about, hey, this guy's going to the middle of nowhere, driving back, and he does it on a regular pattern. That looks strange. And we should check him out. <laughs> you know? uh, let, me, let me ask you here, what's your take on the technological singularity? I, I, I like half of what... Uh, singularity is about. I, in fact, uh, let me see if I can show you what my screens look like here. You know, um, let me, yeah. Um, I got Twitter. I got 40,000 people here on Twitter, right? That are, uh, uh, and a new tweet comes in every half a second all day long. I can tell Twitter's down before Twitter does, before Twitter does, you know? Wow. Cause it's, if it stops for more than four seconds, it's, it's down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I love this idea where I'm going to have the world's information, the world's people, the world's relationships, uh, the world's experiences in my uh, glass or in my eye. Or You'll be plugged in. I, I'm already sort of plugged in yeah. through this. this. This actually makes me very happy, and I'm, I'm happy I've built that. And I have Quora set up just right, and I have Facebook set up. Just right. In fact, my my Facebook is extraordinary, and people keep saying, "Oh, all I see is cat photos and and baby photos." It's like, well, you're not following the right people, and you haven't tuned your system yet. I've done that work. I've I've spent thousands of hours on tuning and making sure that I I see what I want to see. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So I really like that that idea where I'm gonna be able to talk to my glass or my phone and say, "Okay, glass, you know." Uh, where's the closest sushi restaurant or where? But what about the idea that you may be, what about the idea that you may be getting obsolete? That I don't think it makes, uh, I don't think backs like us maybe, uh, I mean, look at it. Machines are getting to be be best, uh, in, in everything. 
Except machines at the heart of them are still a light switch that's on and off. For and now. Nah, there still are. Even if you put a trillion of those light switches together, it starts people start believing it's alive, but it's not alive. It's a fucking light switch <laughs> at the heart of it, all right? Humans are not humans are weird. And and our brains are not light switches. Our brains are uh, something else. Uh, and that gets to the other side. I don't believe that we're going to be able to download our brain. I've seen brain surgeries. Our brains, are, our software and our hardware are intermixed in a very complex pattern. And you are not going to be able to freeze yourself and download yourself in 100 years and come back. First of all, if you could do that, it would be – imagine coming coming back to life right now after – being, you know, asleep for a hundred years, you wouldn't know what to, you would be like a baby in this world and you would have to relearn everything you knew, even driving a car. It's a very different skill than driving a horse and buggy, right? And, and the idea where you would have to get along with people from around the world because they can fly to you, it would be very foreign to you. It would, it would be like you're, you're an alien that dropped in on us and, uh, and not a very smart alien, by the way, right? So, um, I just don't believe, I don't believe in that world. I don't believe in life extension. I, I think, I think death happens for a reason to clean the, the world out of old ideas. And I, 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 yes, me, if you, if you're talking about me, I'm selfish. I want to live forever, but, when I stop being selfish and start thinking about the greater good and thinking about my kids, no, death happens for a reason to get rid of old ideas and old thinking. And I, after having kids, you start realizing how different their brains are than yours are. So what are you going to, are you going to freeze your brain and, you know, or are you going to freeze a three-year-old brain? You know, are you going to implant a three-year-old brain and make yourself young again? I, it's just craziness. I think it's a crazy path to go down. I, but on the other hand, Make my life as extraordinarily as extraordinary as possible. Give me all the information. Um, give me access to experiences. Give me, uh, you know, give me the facts. Give me the science. Um, you know, tap me right into that so I'm not ignorant anymore and I'm not stupid. That that is something worth working on. I think, and I, that's the singularity. When I go to Singularity University, that's the part that I like. Mm-hmm. Go 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 go! Right. You know? <laughs> Make people smarter, get rid of ignorance, you know, help them make decisions, help them see the consequences of their decision. Yes, model the world. All that makes me happy. The stuff that people talk about, you know, life extension, making people live 150 years or 300 years, uh, that's, or downloading their brain. It's just, ah, it makes me nuts. Robert, uh, we are here at the, end of, at the end of our interview. So the second last question I always ask is, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? There's this thing called Google. <laughs> yeah. All right, that answers it. I can teach you how to use it. Just put my last name, Scoble, in there, and you'll find my Facebook and my Twitter and my Google Plus and my Quora and my Instagram. And <laughs> yeah, I deliberately wanted to ask that stupid question. <laughs> it's fun. Hey, you can use Bing, too, or you can use Yahoo Search as well. <laughs> it all works, you know. I'm a virus... I'm a virus on the internet, you know. <laughs> All right. So you, you can't avoid me if you use the right searches. So Robert, we've been talking for almost an hour today. Let yeah. me ask you this. What is the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from you today? Mm. 
stop resisting the future. And, you know, um, I, you know, I almost got in a fight with a guy who, who was one of the founders of the Tea Party at South by Southwest. And <laughs> I realized his entire worldview was the, the past is sacrosanct, that we should serve the past. And my entire worldview is the future is sacrosanct. We should serve the future. Mm-hmm. And those two worldviews just don't align. And I'd far much rather live in the future than in the past. Uh, I, and for a whole lot of reasons, you know, I'd, I'd rather live in a world that has gay marriage and doesn't have slavery and doesn't have, and lets women vote and, uh, is m- more thoughtful of human rights and has technologies that help us live our lives, has exoskeletons that help paraplegics walk and helps, has glasses that help me to think and, and helps the blind to see. I'd rather live in that world and has a self-driving car so we don't have to worry about people getting drunk and, stu- and falling asleep and killing my kids. I'd rather live in that world than in a world where, uh, you know, we had slavery and we didn't, we didn't have human rights and all that. I, it, it just drives me nuts. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I like living in the future. I entirely agree with you. And it would be terribly sad and pessimistic if, if, uh, the best of us was in the past. And, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're looking backwards, you're yeah. never going to improve really. So I couldn't agree more. And I think. Stop Resisting the Future is a fantastic place to end our interview on today. Thank you very much, Robert.